Good morning. Well, I feel like we've had church already this morning. I feel like the spirit is in this house, and I appreciate the opportunity to get to be here and get to talk to you a little bit and share with you a little bit of my story. Um, this was the day that we didn't have somebody. <laughs> so when, when uh, you know, we've been talking for the last few weeks about kind of what the plan was, how we were going to do Women of the Gathering and all that. And, and we had this one day that was kind of a still to be determined. And in the back of my mind, I was like, they're going to ask me. And then, and then I thought, maybe they won't. You know, and it got a little closer and a little closer. And finally, last Friday, as I'm driving into work, I get a text from Dave. <laughs> hey, you got a minute? Can we talk? <laughs> so, um, you would have thought that I would have maybe been getting something ready because I saw this coming from down the road, right? But I, I hadn't really. And so I said, Dave, I am not afraid of public speaking, but I need something to talk about. I, you know, this whole like, just get up there and share something is, is intimidating, right? <laughs> so he said, I got you. I'm going to be praying about it tomorrow morning when I have my time with the Lord. I'm going to really put that before him and, and I'll get back with you. And I was thinking, okay. So the next morning I get a two word text from Dave, trusting God. And I thought, okay, maybe. <laughs> and then this week we had in our church family, something scary happen. And I thought, he knew. God knew what we needed to talk about this week. And your pastor, I want to encourage you, is listening <laughs> to the Lord and is hearing what he has to say. And so here we are. Um, I want to share the kind of the verse around which everything I want to share with you this morning is, is revolving. Um, it's Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and has made the Lord his hope and his confidence. He is like a tree planted along the riverbank with its roots reaching deep into the water, a tree not bothered by the heat nor worried by long months of drought. Its leaves stay green and it goes right on producing luscious fruit. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And that's why I put a picture of a tree on, on this. And, and I just want you to... Think about the tree and, and the roots going down and it absorbing the living water because I think in our lives, that's an opportunity for us. And I want to share with you a little bit about my story and where I've come from. I was talking with my parents and I told them that I was going to speak today and that the topic was trusting God. And my mom kind of rolled her eyes and said, well, you've got enough to say. <laughs> about that with your life story. And I really do. Um, I was really blessed. I grew up in a Christian home. And so I had a strong foundation of faith from my early years. And that was a blessing. I went to a Christian school for several years as I was growing up. And, and during that time, we memorized a verse every single week. And I tucked those verses away in my heart. And I want to tell you, I'm so blessed that I did. Those of you who are parents, Help your kids hide God's word away in their heart because those verses that I learned before I was even a teenager are the ones that I remember the most easily and the most quickly today. 
now that I'm <clears throat> not a teenager, um, <laughs> it's so much harder. It's so much harder to remember those things. Um, so I want to just encourage you, think about that little one. Uh, but as I grew, um, my family moved from California to Oklahoma. I went to the University of Oklahoma. Boomer, anybody out there? <laughs> um, and while I was there, I met a handsome midshipman who was an aspiring Marine, getting ready to um, start a career. Um, in, in case any of you don't know, the handsome man that stands up here with the electric guitar is my other half, um, the blessing that God gave me all those years ago. Um, so we were 21 years old, and on graduation day, he got commissioned, and we got married. <laughs> we loaded up the car, and we moved to Virginia. And that was probably the first big kind of pivot point in my life, where I was making my own decisions and my own choices, and I, I felt God's hand, and I felt so blessed that God had put this man in my life, and we, we moved away. And in my family, my dad was a little bit older than my mom, and he had been established in his career, and I mean, just a few years older, but he was established in his career, and when they got married, they kind of just came together, and, and uh, she joined him in what he was doing. But somehow, at 21 years old, when the two of us graduated that day and we got married, I felt like we were two kids standing by the edge of a cliff, holding hands and saying, one, two, three, jump. <laughs> And that's how we started our life together. Um, a few years later, one of the first tough things that we would experience together happened with the birth of our first child, which was such a happy and beautiful day. But a few minutes after um, she had been born, my oldest daughter, Bonnie, um, the doctor said, I think we need to go run some tests. And they discovered that she had a congenital heart defect. And they suspected that a blood vessel that is open when babies are still in the womb um, was going to close and that that was probably what was keeping her alive. And so they were afraid that within the first 24 hours of life, when that blood vessel closes as it does, that we wouldn't have a little girl anymore. And so we got people praying coast to coast. And all the family, all the friends, all the church, um, lifted her up, and when the time came and that blood vessel closed, she was fine. Now, three months later, her oxygen saturations had gotten low enough that um, they felt like she needed to have surgery, so they took her in. They, they did a, a reconstructive surgery, and um, the operation was successful, and we were happy, but a few hours later, those blood sats started going down, down, down again, um, and the doctor said, we don't know what's wrong. Um, we said, we are going to pray. We got everybody praying again. They took her in. They put her in the catheterization lab, put her out on the table, and sent a little fiber optic eye up there to look and see what was going on. They were talking about repeating the same operation again, but on the other side of her heart and doing some other things that sounded so extreme, and here's our poor little baby just all laid out. Um, <clears throat> and while she was in there in that cath lab, as we prayed... All of a sudden, her oxygen saturations popped back up into the high 90s, and she was fine. They brought her out of that room, and the doctor said, we don't know what just happened, but she's okay. 
And we said, we know what happened. We got healed. She got healed. And we know who was responsible for that. And we gave thanks to him. So as our family's life continued to go along, um, we got through flight school and stationed in Southern California. And then uh, John got a Pentagon tour. So back to Virginia. And we'd been there for a few years. And um, actually did command and staff college in Quantico. And then we went on. Uh, and you hear how I say we. When, a, when, you, when your man is in the Marines, the whole family is in the Marines. <laughs> so we were a Marine Corps family. And um, when he got stationed at the Pentagon, um, a couple weeks later, a pretty momentous day in the country's history happened. And that was a long day for me. I was on staff at our church, and I was working there, and there were several other women whose husbands were also um, working in the Pentagon, and within about 15, 20 minutes, they had all got a check-in from their husband. And those of you guys who were around at that time remember that this was all going down in the kind of first thing in the morning. So a little bit after 9 o'clock, when we heard the really bad news that there had been an attack on the Pentagon, um, most of my friends who I was working with heard from their husband right away. And I didn't hear anything. <laughs> and then as the day was going on, anybody who had ever even heard of anybody in New York or Washington, D.C. was calling their friends and loved ones. You couldn't get a phone line. And it was before we had Facebook check-ins or anything like that. And so I didn't hear from him until about 3 o'clock that afternoon. It was a long day for me. But I'll tell you what's amazing. <laughs> When all this was going down, my mother-in-law was teaching in a little school up in Prague, Oklahoma. She's a kindergarten teacher. And her principal heard what was happening and called her into the office just absolutely distraught, knowing that her son worked in the Pentagon, and was crying her eyes out to the point where Linda Kay, my mother-in-law, could barely even get her to say what was wrong, what's going on. And um, finally, when she managed to get it out, she said, I'm so worried that your son was hurt and that everything was bad. Um, <laughs> um, sorry. My mother-in-law said, my son is going to take every breath that God had ordained for him from the beginning, and he is fine. She had that trust. It was a beautiful thing. She trusted the Lord. So I finally heard from him at the end of the day, and I was grateful, too. <laughs> a few years after that, um, one day I was around, I was walking around our house in the morning, and um, John had been down in the basement where he'd made a little office, and he'd been having some time with the Lord. And he came upstairs, and he looked at me, and he had wide eyes and kind of a white face. <laughs> and I, I said, What's going on? And he said, I'm supposed to leave the Marines. And I said, what? And he said, I don't know, but the Lord's just telling me that I'm not supposed to re-up at the end of this commitment that I have. Now, you have to understand, we were 13 years into the Marine Corps at this time, and, and we were really happy as a Marine Corps family. This is what we were planning to do. We thought that John would stay in the Marines until they kicked him out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he had been planning on that for a long time. But he said, I feel the Lord. He's calling me into full-time Christian work. 
And I said, well, okay. You have to understand that being a military family, there is a certain security. It's not safe, but it's secure. That check is coming in every month. You've got really good benefits. It's a really kind of solid place to sit for your family. So when he said, we're not going to do that anymore, that was kind of like forging out into the unknown, right? And actually, it was really unknown because we knew that the Lord was calling us to do something different, but we didn't know what it was. And, and JJ is so talented. There are so many different things he can do. We were working with college students at our church at the time. I thought, well, maybe he'll be a campus pastor. He was leading a worship band. I thought, well, maybe he'll be a worship minister. Um, there were so many different things that were kind of floating around in my mind. And every time I asked him, like, okay, well, so what does God want you to do? He said, I don't know. And I said, well, you're hearing God talk to you. And, and you guys, our God is so big. And I know it sounds maybe a little bit weird. And people are like, okay, how do you hear God talking to you? God is so big. I can't tell you how he talks to us, but I can tell you that he does. And when he does, you know it's him and you know what he's saying, right? So by that miracle, we were just waiting to hear from him. And we'd been waiting and waiting for months at this time where we were kind of looking at what are we supposed to do? And he had gone out to seminary and he'd, he'd come to Dallas and our, our whole marriage, about 14 years at this time, we had lived on one coast or the other with the Marines, and my family was here in the middle. So mom and dad are in Dallas. He gets a cross-country flight that ends him up in, in Dallas, and he says, I'm going to just go walk the land at the seminary at Dallas Theological and just see if maybe that's where I'm supposed to be. And I'm thinking, yes, <laughs> mom and dad, home. <laughs> I was really excited. So even though I hadn't lived in Dallas, it had been our home of record for a long time because my parents were here, and, and uh, I thought that would be perfect. And so he, we get on the phone, and he's walking around, and we're praying together, and we're, we're thinking that maybe Dallas Theological is the place that we're supposed to land. And he says to me, this isn't it. At that point... I might have lost my uh, cool just a little bit. <laughs> my, my sweet, supportive wife uh, went out the window, and I was like, what the heck? <laughs> what is it that we're supposed to be doing? You have ruled out worship pastor. You've ruled out campus pastor. Now you've ruled out seminary. What is this full-time Christian work thing supposed to actually look like? Now, okay, it's Women of the Gathering Month. We're going to talk a little bit about women. Ladies, how many of you are mothers? Okay, so when you know that you're expecting, you know that this little peanut is growing in your belly, and one day it's going to be very beautiful and very exciting that you're going to get to have a baby, right? So having a baby is a lovely picture. The thought of actually delivering a baby is terrifying, right? <laughs> so I know for me, at least, especially the first time, I'm thinking, okay, God, I know you, I trust you, and I know that you made a woman's body so that this is, you know, going to work, but somehow in my head, this did not seem feasible <laughs> that I was actually going to deliver a baby, right? But somehow, God has set it up so that at the end of nine months, you are 
so big, so unwieldy, so uncomfortable, so much indigestion, have to go to the bathroom every hour, all these little things that happen to the point where you're kind of like, you know what, this scary thing that I've been thinking about that's hanging over my head for a long time, I will do anything to not feel like this anymore. I don't care. I don't care what it takes. I just don't want to feel like this anymore. That was the point of extremity that God got me to. I got to the point where I felt like, I don't care what it is, God, just tell us so we can do it. And then we took our college group to Texas, actually. We were in Virginia, but we, we brought a group to Sherman, Texas, to Passion Ministries One Day event. And even though it's called One Day, it was a three-day prayer gathering. And while we were there, we visited um, this tent that they called the Go Tent. We didn't even know this was going to be there. But while we were there, we met a guy who had an idea. And it was an idea to go into North Africa, into the Muslim world, and train American college students on how to live and work in that part of the world and um, do mission work over there. And at the time, it was just an idea. But you know what? It clicked. We knew at that point that that's what we were supposed to do. And we said, so actually, where, where? <laughs> Is this supposed to be? And I walked around for about the next week going, Africa? <laughs> Africa? You've got to be kidding me. Has anybody, any of you guys know anybody who says, you know what, I don't want to become a Christian. God's going to make me be a missionary in Africa. <laughs> I'm testimony that you can come out the other side of that and that it, that it works just fine. Uh, most people will not get that call. But we did in our family, and God had gotten me to that point of extremity where we were ready to say yes to whatever it was, and that's what it took. So we did take our family, and for three and a half years, we served on the mission field in North Africa. And during that time, we actually were able to equip over 60 American college students for missions um, in unreached places around the world. And even to today, we have... Um, descendants from that ministry serving in Jordan, in Nepal, in Tajikistan, and other places all around the world. What a huge blessing. Because God got us to the place where he had us saying yes. So we had an unknown call, and then we went to an unknown land. And God was with us through all of it. So then, after about three years, we started to feel that restlessness again and that we were hearing the Lord's voice again and that it was time to actually come back to the States. Now, those of you guys who have lived cross-culturally know that it takes about two years to feel like your host culture is home. So we were there long enough to make all that cultural adaptation <laughs> to where your host culture feels like home. And then we undid it all and came back. <laughs> so that felt like just as big a move as, as saying yes to go over there. Um, but we did return to the States, and we felt the Lord calling us to a new ministry, and John had been um, praying really hard that he could serve the place where the people needed him the most. And that prayer led him to ministry in South Sudan. And um, we both became involved through an organization called Harvesters Reaching the Nations, 
um, in ministry in South Sudan. We both spent some time there, but actually over the next two or three years, John would spend the majority of his time actually in South Sudan um, as a tent maker, working for the Department of State and working for the Lord's work while he was there. So our family was separated. We were back in Virginia. He was in South Sudan, and that was a rough time. Um, but at the same time, God carried us through, and we knew we were doing what he wanted us to do. So a few years after that, when John came back to the States and started doing some contract work more locally, I was feeling very blessed by that, uh, especially because at, during this time, our kids were starting to leave the house. They were in college, and, and uh, by the end of it, um, when it came to the last one heading off to Baylor, I thought... I can't do this. I can't live by myself. Lord, please bring my husband back home. And he did. So John was back home with us. We were living in Virginia, and um, it was at that time that the Lord really carried us through one of the darkest chapters in our lives when we started dealing with um, what many veterans deal with, uh, with post-traumatic stress syndrome. And it was a, a really difficult time. And I watched the strongest, most disciplined man that I know go to a place of deep, deep depression, feelings of helplessness, and feelings of really deep isolation. But the Lord carried us through that time, too, on his power of prayer. And that brought us to the next chapter, where we moved to Texas. And uh, the exciting thing is that all of our three kids actually had, um, have ended up in this area with us as well. Two of us preceded us, uh, two of them, and then another one um, came and joined us. We felt the Lord's hand, and we know that we're supposed to be here. Finally, close to mom and dad. <laughs> it was a big treat for me. Um, <laughs> But the Lord carried us through all that time. So that's the story that I want to tell you. And I want to go through and, and look at this verse in Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 at three key words that shine out in there on how to trust the Lord for the long obedience. Um, one of my favorite speakers, Gary Haugen from International Justice Mission, says that the Lord has not called us to short bursts of passion, but he's called us to live in the long obedience. So the way that we can live in long obedience is through trust and hope and confidence in him. So I wanted to look at these words, and the word trust means firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. And the word hope, a feeling of expectation and desire for, certain, for a certain thing to happen, a person or thing that may help or save someone, grounds for believing that something good may happen. And confidence, the feeling or belief that one can rely on someone or something from trust. Um, or firm trust. So Proverbs 9.10 says, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. 
Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. And Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, one of those verses from my childhood, says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. So, Jeremiah 17, 7, and 8, our verse for today, it points out two different ways that we endure trials, the heat and the drought. The heat, those short-term things that come along that we need to struggle with every day, the sudden ugly things that pop up that we have to deal with. Maybe it's a little irritant. Or maybe it's something bigger, but we have to deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. And then the drought, the long season, the times when we are feeling isolated and alone. That song that we were singing this morning, you say, you are here when I feel alone. You know, those seasons that are very difficult, those things are the, the periods when we are called to trust. So how? How do you do it? How do you trust for the long obedience? What is God asking us to do when he gives us all these verses and all these assurances in his word? We need to lay down roots. So definition of roots, part of a plant which attaches it to the ground for support, right? We know that part. That's the kind of actual tree root kind of thing. And it's really interesting with a tree. You actually have to have wind for a tree to develop its roots to full capacity and full potential. If there is nothing that blows against the tree, the tree will never develop deep roots. Those roots will never go down and find the water. The roots will never make, be strong enough that the tree will stand. So interesting sidebar, when you move into your house and they put all those, they put those things that hold your tree, you should only leave those there for about six months because if you don't take them down, you're doing your tree a disservice. Your tree will never develop the way that it's supposed to. Some of you are going, I got to do something when I get home. <laughs> but another um, Definition, the part of a thing attaching it to a greater or more fundamental whole, the end or the base, the basis, the thing that something stands on, right? Or the verb, to establish deeply and firmly. So what we're looking at here is developing these roots, rooting our faith so that we have something that will hold us in the times when those droughts come, when the heat comes, we have something that we can stand on, that we can stand firmly. So how do I develop spiritual roots? These are spiritual disciplines. And I've put this word spiritual roots here, but I want to say something that um, is really meaningful to me, and that, that's that God does not just want your spiritual life. God wants your life. 
does not see a distinction between the spiritual life and the rest of your life. And I think a lot of us, we kind of box up Sunday morning and set that apart and say, that's my spiritual life. Or um, maybe we lay down in bed at night and we have prayers or first thing in the morning we have some time or whatever, and that's my spiritual time. But what God wants is our whole life, not just our spiritual life. So developing spiritual roots requires spiritual disciplines. That's spending time in the word, spending time in prayer. And I, I want to show you today's takeaway. We can trust God because we know his character. We can have faith in him because we know who he is. How do we know who he is? How do you know anyone? Spend time together. Spend time in prayer. Spend time in the word. And in my life, whenever I've come to one of those pivot points, there's been a scripture that has been something that I could hang on to during that time. The verses of my childhood, call unto me and I will answer you and show you a great and mighty thing which you do not know. Jeremiah 33, 3. Jeremiah 29, 13. If you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. These are the verses that I clung to when I made that first cross-country move. These are the things that God had put in my heart at that time. Then, when I had a baby girl, who, by the way, caught me flat-footed. She's sitting in the back of the room today, 27. The Lord's miracle. Um, he saved her through the fervent prayer of so many who joined together on her behalf. We're believing that same healing on Carrie this week. Then the call to Africa, or the call out of, out of the Marines and into Christian work. Yes, Lord, walking in the light of your word, we wait eagerly for you, for your name and your renown are the desire of our soul. He had to get me to the point where I said yes before I knew what it was. And that's the verse that we clung to. And then it was time to go. Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you with my righteous right hand. That verse carried me through many a night where I was lying in my bed in North Africa going, what am I doing here? I knew that I was supposed to be there. In the next verse, yet I still belong to you. You are holding my right hand. You will keep on guiding me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. This was the verse that I clung to when it was time to come back to the States. And I, I was thinking, is this quitting? Are we leaving the mission field after three and a half years? Are we just quitting? And God said, no. You're just starting the next chapter. And this, that was the verse that I clung to. And as we entered that stage where my husband was in Africa and I was in Virginia with the kids, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do the work. Do not be afraid of the size of the task, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. 
And then that dark season with JJ's mental health. I love the Lord because he hears and answers my prayers. And that's a beautiful picture. Because he bends down and listens, I will pray as long as I have breath. Psalm 118.1. And then the verse that he's given me for this most recent chapter. Brethren, do not, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. So for me, in my life, the way that I have been able to knuckle down for the long obedience is rooted in God's word. It's rooted in these scriptures. And praying these scriptures out, the pages in my Bible are saturated with tears where most of these verses are located because they were not in easy times. They were in times of heat. They were in times of drought. But without that wind, I would never have developed the roots. So... I want to share something with you that talks a little bit more about who our God is. It's from a prayer that was written by Ann Graham Lotz, um, Billy Graham's daughter, who grew up um, under the wing of a man of titanic stature in the faith. And what she learned is about God's character and about who he is. And it's a prayer called, um, a poem called, Just Give Me Jesus. He is enduringly strong. He is entirely sincere. He is eternally steadfast. He is immortally gracious. He is imperially powerful. He is impartially merciful. He is the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizons of the globe. Just give me Jesus. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the captive's ransom. He's the breath of life. He is the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He is a goose and he is unique. He is unparalleled and unprecedented. He is undisputed and undefined. He is unsurpassable and unshakable. Just give me Jesus. He forgives and he forgets. He creates and he cleanses. He restores and he rebuilds. He heals and he helps. He reconciles and he redeems. He comforts and he carries. He lives and he loves. He's the God of the second chance, the fat chance, the slim chance, the no chance. Just give me Jesus. He saves the hopeless. He shields the helpless. He sustains the homeless. He gives purpose to the aimless. He gives reason to our meaninglessness. He gives fulfillment to our emptiness. He gives light to the darkness, comfort in the loneliness, fruit in the barrenness, future to the hopeless, life to the lifeless. Just give me Jesus. 
He had no predecessor and will have no successor. He is the lion and the lamb. He is God and he is man. He is the seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. That's a moral king. He's the king of the ages. That's an eternal king. He's the king of heaven. That's a universal king. He's the king of glory. That's a celestial king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Say it with me. Just give me Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to share. I pray your hand over everyone that's here this morning that learning to trust you would be something that you build in all of our lives. And Lord, we trust you in hard times. We trust you in the heat. We trust you in the barrenness. We trust you with our sweet Carrie Kimball. And we lift her up to you. Lord, we know that you are the God of healing. You are the God of strength. And your word says that where two or three are gathered together in your name, you are there in our midst. So, Lord, we just pray that healing. We call on that power. I pray that as we get ready to go out for the week, that you would be strengthening us, that you would be helping us towards those spiritual disciplines that will help us grow in our lives. And we thank you that when we pray, you bend down and listen. In the name of Jesus.